Hello and welcome to this week's debrief. I'm Angus Scott. The transfer window has long closed, but there's still plenty of news to come from Fabrizio Romano. Fab, the world's transfer guru, is with us later with news on the Mbappe saga and Conor Gallagher's future. From our Fab to IFAB, that little-known footballing body that seems to do everything it can to change the game and not necessarily for the better. Well, now on the cards, as it were, to add to the yellow and red ones they have is a blue one. And this time it's a sin bin. A 10-minute spell on the naughty step for those who commit a cynical foul or tell the referee what they really think of him or her. So out of the blue, do we get some blue sky thinking? Or has IFAB just muddied the waters and threatened to implement the worst change to football since the BBC updated their social media policies for presenters? Well, that's what we are debating today. Are the lawmakers ruining football? Ben Jacobs is here. Ben, hello. Good to see you. That was your best intro yet. Thank you. Thank you. It took me a bit of time, but, you know, you get, get a bit of colour in there and everything else. Uh, you've got some material to work with. Also with us today, two returning faces to the debrief. Christina Uncle, our resident FIFA referee. Hiya. Hello. Thanks for having me. Great on the colour commentary, considering oh, all we're going to be talking about is colours today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Uh, and James Benji is here, CBS correspondent based in North London, um, but with the world at his feet. I feel like I'm going to offer infinitely less to this conversation than, than anyone else, but I'm <laughs> delighted to join. And if I'm, if you're not happy with me, blue cards, red cards, whatever, I'll clear out. Well, I think I think I'm done. I'm empty carded now. I've got no, I've got nothing more. Right. Um, let's start with you, Christina. Look, IFAB have debated this. They came up with this idea sort of back end of last year, didn't they? Then they had their um, annual general meeting. And then they've come up with the idea that, yeah, we'll, we'll expand it a little bit. But what are they intending to expand? Tell us. Yeah, so they've already done some trials and clinicals um, in youth competitions. So I actually was a bit surprised at how much uh, anger and explosion <laughs> came out of nowhere, especially since it was two days after the agenda items had been announced by IFAB as to what was going to be uh, portrayed. And here, what is the important part that many kind of just overlook quickly is that this is still in trial mode. So the presentation and kind of where we're at now next with the trials of the sin bin, the trials of the blue card is just that it's still in trial mode to see whether or not it does benefit and add to football, also known as the product. When we're talking about keeping the ball in play, that is one of their biggest things is how much more time can we keep the ball in play? Other other laws that have impacted this is like the Men's World Cup when they were adding 13, 14, 15 minutes in it, right? The focus is how do we keep the ball in play? How do we have more attacking football? And how do we generate more goals and don't essentially um, reward those who are not making football plays? So two things. Yes, still in trial mode. Yes, they'll only be considering it and doing trial modes in more senior um, competitions and matches not yet rolled out to see if it makes sense. But secondly, most importantly, and the other point I think everyone's getting lost is what is a cynical foul? Um, once people understand what a cynical foul is, I think that will make everyone feel more comfortable with what the purpose of the sin bins and the blue card are supposed to essentially attain and hit. Okay, well, let's get into that definition. Let's get, in fact, actually, before we all start, let's have a vote. Who's who's in favor of blue cards? 
I am <laughs> in favour of having, sticking. Yeah. trying them. Okay. Like, I wanted and to and see Christina. what happens. Trying them. Yes. Okay. Christina and, and, and James are saying yes. Ben, do I take it you're saying no? I'm saying one, refs would need bigger pockets. And two, <laughs> a more strict definition and maybe even a different colour. But I'm not against trying them, but just for devil's advocate, I'm going to decide to go against Christina and James. Uh, I agree. I, look, we've got, two, we've got two no's, two yeses. Right. So that, let's see where we are at the end of this um, podcast. But Christina, you were going to get into the specifics. Let's get a definition of what a cynical foul is. Yeah, so cynical foul isn't found necessarily in the laws of the game, but it's found in essentially the commentary. What we say is, you know, kind of the football clarifications for us internally when we talk about the applications, the considerations. So for officials for over the past easily two to three years, cynical foul for us is essentially a non-football play when we talk about, and there was the example given of, you know, when it is a player who has essentially beaten another player is in a promising attack and that defender merely just takes the hand and grabs the shirt, pulls them back, whether it's in American world, we call it a, a you know, a collar tackle, right? Um, but yeah. essentially there is no attempt to play the ball in any manner, shape or form. Others may refer that to a professional foul. Others refer it as a tactical foul. But in essence, we all know what it is when we see it. It's when the ball is crossed, they're into an attacker face, they have no chance to win, they know there's going to be advantages, maybe a three-on-two or momentum. And so that defender commits that foul to break up that stopping a promising attack. That for us is considered cynical because there's no attempt to play the ball, you can't play the ball with your hands, and it's merely just to disrupt the game. And for us, that is the definition of what a cynical foul is. We all know it when we see it. It usually happens on the outer banks near the touchline. And it always happens when there is a quick counterattack play. Yeah, yeah. We, we've all seen it. We all know it. And we all go, oh, that's a cynical foul. doesn't matter where it is on the pitch. If it's breaking up that passage of play, um, we, we want it stopped. But is the blue card the right answer? Anyway, James, your gut feeling is, is you want to see it happen? I'd like to, to see it tried because, I mean, what I know is, that the one of the things that drives me most mad when I watch a football match is when these promising counters that we were just talking about, when we know where that cynical foul is, that they're just they're just cut out because the punishment doesn't fit the crime. You are bursting free on goal, or you are, you know, it's a three on two counter attack. I, I think we all agree that's football we love to see. You know, when those moves get executed perfectly, and no one in this sport uh, can ever blame you know, picking a name entirely at random, not because I think he's got a reputation for doing it. Uh, Rodri, uh, when he <laughs> hauls down uh, an opponent just as they're threatening to get away and, and get a rare attack on City because, you know, we all know a yellow card there is absolutely the right thing to do. You don't want to give up a high value shot at goal or, an you know, have to make that tackle later and potentially give up a penalty. You take the yellow card, you, you take the free kick and you know that, you know, football being what it is, I think it's something like Christina, correct me if I'm wrong, only about 2% of yellow cards are followed by a second yellow. So you always have to take a statistic. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I want to see what we can do to stop that. You know, I think there's always the law of unintended consequences on this. If it, if the risk is a sin bin and, and 10, 10 minutes when you're down a, a, a player, do we just see more cautious football? Do teams put like three or four players back when they're when they're attacking corners because they're 
scared of getting countered and scared of getting sin binned. Is that 10 minutes of sin binned football completely unwatchable? I know, Angus, you'll you'll know about the rugby side of this as well. It can sometimes be a a slog and a scrap, can't it? And you know that the team that's down to 14 will be like, we're taking this game into the trenches. We're doing everything we can to turn it into 10 minutes of unwatchable sport. Yeah, I think so. But we don't know that. No, no, no. I mean, I sort of agree. Yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. And I agree to a certain extent. But if you look at I think what I would love to do is to be able to compare rugby with football. But I genuinely Mm. don't think we can because Mm. um, the the numerical advantage of having 15 against 14 in rugby far outweighs uh, 11 versus 10 in football. And I, from my, my perspective, I think you just get 10 minutes of shocking football. And I, I think we've seen enough uh, 11 versus 10 um, in in football that produces absolutely nothing. And you could have uh, 80 minutes um, if someone sent off in the first 10 and you've got 80 minutes of 11 against 10 and you still don't get any decent football out of it. In rugby, it would far uh, outweigh the advantage being uh, having 15 to 14. And then we would see you're, you're expected to score points when a rugby team has a numerical supremacy, you will not naturally be scoring goals when a football team has that supremacy. And therein lies the difference. And I, I yeah. ultimately think that that um, I wouldn't be worried if I had a blue card, pink card, red card, what, you know, not a red card, but, you know, a brown card, whatever <laughs> colour card it was. But it meant that you that you had 10 minutes off the pitch. I don't think it would make absolutely a slightest bit of difference. Um, and I think it's a complete waste of time. Ben. I think, first of all, we have to respect the definitions. Second of all, we have to remember that football is a fluid moving game. And therefore, if it's stopped and started and reviewed based on these new definitions for a potential Simbin, that can be a complicating factor. I see nothing wrong in theory with the ability for two yellows to be a Simbin or alternatively to not change the colour of cards and still simbin somebody. So we have to think about simplicity and keeping the game flowing. Would, for example, we don't know yet, a simbin be VAR reviewable or in any way appealable? And I think the downside will be time-related. The upside will be a decline in descent, which we've seen at grassroots levels during the trial of the blue card and that is a positive for sure and obviously these things we get used to because every new generation comes up learning about the rules in real time so it's very easy to dismiss it now much like the passback rule or even var and in 10 15 years realize how did we ever live without a simbin and i think that for those that are frustrated by sendings off the Simbin is potentially a middle ground as well. So there's a lot to like. I think the thing that intrigues me the most, though, James, maybe to you, because you kind of touched upon it a moment ago, is less the rules and the card and the colour, Christina's area, and more the repercussions. And I'm fascinated by this notion of a Simbin forces urgency, where a side that Simbined probably doesn't make a substitution at that point because they know the player's coming on in 10 minutes. But the other side almost enters into an ice hockey type power play where five minutes mm. in the game, they potentially go, whoa, 
we'd set up to park the bus and get a goal on the counter-attack. And now, five minutes into the game, we've got 10 minutes where we can go more gung-ho and you have to adapt. So the thing that fascinates me the most is not actually the rules ramifications, but the tactical ones. And I, and I think they're the ones that you can really have the least grasp on until you die. And to be frank, you at some stage, you know, when I say we should try this, I do mean it's going to have to go to a higher level than youth football and grassroots football because, <laughs> you know, the level of tactical complexity. Like, I want to see how Pep Guardiola approaches having one of his players sin-binned. You know, I was talking to um, one of my colleagues about what do managers do in, in this scenario? So, I mean, let's say that one of your players gets sin-binned in the 60th minute. Do you take off your winger to bring on a fullback? And then when that fullback that's been sin, your fullback is sin bin. And when he's done his sin bin, does he come back on the pitch? Do you sort of, you know, is it almost like a, a substitution, a tactical opportunity to sort of meld around and, and not quite try different things because you're having to be reactive. But, you know, with so many of these things, there are sort of laws of unintended consequences. And and I, I tend to find with football rule laws specifically that what we would expect to happen is almost immediately countered. So it was very obvious, even when Arsene Wenger spoke about, let's change the offside rules so that it's it's daylight or whatever he wanted to term it, behind um, the defender for a, a forward to be off, offside. It was obvious immediately that, that that would bring about more defensive football. Now, how the sin bin works, I honestly have no idea. Uh, well, actually, I have one thing I'm really intrigued by, though, that Christina might be able to answer, knowing the people that know make these decisions. Why on earth is it a blue card? Because a blue card <laughs> sounds like what? I, I mean, you might not know, but a blue card is where I have at Cafe Nero to get stamped for my free coffee. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm going to learn more about that. Um, no, so the blue card, the color in and of itself, right, could have been various colors, but it's very distinguishable. And going back to I think what Ben had alluded to is this communication side of it. If we were to give two yellow cards, how do we let people know that's not a two yellow card red card or it's a two yellow card sin bin card without us verbalizing it and then that turns into complexities. If you have a very clear color that is very distinguishable from naturally yellow and red, immediately everyone's going to understand what the what the what the implications are, right? The 10 minute um, timeout and then the power play for lack of a better term. Um, what we kind of really need to tie in, and so that's why it's a blue card. It's just very distinguishable. It's going to pop compared to the rest of the other two cards. So it's a communication thing. Um, but importantly, kind of, I don't see this as impacting the game very much. In the beginning, yes, because kind of, Ben, as you mentioned, and as we know, it's right now is part of football is these professional tactical fouls of pulling someone in a stopping promising attack. But that's the whole point. I know at one point in Major League Soccer, we were in the middle of the season, and the statistics were about on average 15 yellow cards on a weekend of play were all associated to cynical fouls and pulling individuals down. So clearly, footballing is saying, we're okay with these. We are going to take it. So we're not eliminating it from the game by giving yellows. I've seen that quite a bit. Just give a yellow. We are giving a yellow, and it's not it's not curbing these types of actions. And the whole point of officiating, the whole point of giving cards is to prevent players or to continue those types of behaviors. And it's not doing that. And that's why the blue card has come around. That's why this, you know, middle layer between yellow and red cards has arisen because right now what is happening isn't working. And I do feel like in the beginning, 
when people are getting blue cards, I can't wait for the day when the person goes to grab someone and then just pulls their hand back, recognizing that they're going to be sitting out for 10 minutes. And all of a sudden, it's going to be stat- it's going to start stamping out of people's minds not to pull back. That's going to happen and that's going to happen very quickly. So we may see more sin bins initially, but after, I think it'll eliminate this play. And that's the whole point of this. We won't be sitting here saying every game we're going to have a sin bin or every other game, maybe in the beginning as they mentally get used to it, but soon it'll start eliminating that tactic in, in its entirety. It's interesting because obviously in basketball, the whole point is you use the fouls that you're given and it's part of the game. In football, the cynical fouls get punished. And I don't think we'll ever get to a scenario where you're allowed a cynical foul. And then if you've done one, then you get blue carded. I think it's all or nothing. It's a simbin or ultimately you don't do it. But my question, Christina, and it can only be speculative, I know at this stage, but I'd love to get your perspective before we go to Fabrizio Romano. Number one, do you sense in this middle ground type punishment and card that VAR can get involved? And number two, in a Simbin, where would a player go? Yes. So I I love that because that second question actually had a really good debate with Aaron on it, uh, Aaron West. But the first part is, uh, do I believe VAR will be involved in this protocol? My answer is no. And here's why. Once you know the VAR protocol and what it's supposed to correct and fix, which I know there's debate as to whether or not it's actually being implied uh, globally around this respect, is it's supposed to fix uh, key match incidents, game critical decisions, errors that 99.9% of the football community is going to accept as an error, the hand of God into the back of the goal that but for VAR could the officiating team see, right? Um, here, because the punishment doesn't rise through the complete removal of a player, yes, I know there's debate about if this happens in the 86th minute, you know, that would eliminate them from the game. But because it's not a direct red card, because it is not um, a play that can in- impact the um, a key match incident or a game critical decision, I don't believe and nor should VAR be involved in decisions on cynical fouls because we all know what it looks like. You all know what it looks like. It will be very clear. It's either going to be kind of going back to your point, Ben, it's all or nothing. Either this is going to be defined as a blue cynical card or it's going to be no foul whatsoever and no card was, or a simple foul, right? But no card whatsoever associated with it. It's going to be like offside. It's going to be a bit more black and white. And for that reason, VAR should not get involved. Um, it would cause a lot more chaos. It would delay the time, defeats the whole point of the introduction of the blue card. Um, sorry, what was the second question? <laughs> oh, where do they go? Um, so this is kind of where like my debate, well, some people are like, oh, it's going to be centrally, and this is what they're testing out. Should that be centrally located in between, um, in between the technical areas? Uh, and it's 10 minutes. So the question that was proposed to me is, will that increase the risk of injury for players who are standing there for 10 minutes and watching? And I thought that was probably one of the biggest issues that need to be reviewed, even though when people come out at halftime, they've been sitting around for 15, 20 minutes, right? There's a little bit of a warm-up and then they go back into the game. So I think that's kind of the biggest ones. And if that's the case, if we need to continue to focus on the players staying warm so that there's no increase in injuries because of this, most likely the place would have to be somewhere aligned along a touchline so that the individuals could continue to warm up along the touchline. So that has not yet fully been determined. Um, in some of the trials, it was in between the technical benches. Uh, but I do think there needs to be a little bit more analysis as to where it's going to be placed just so that players can continue to stay warm and prevent injuries in that time period. 
Yeah, look, the, the rugby players do the same, don't they? They sit on a bike, put a big coat on, and they're all right. And these guys are, you know, 150 kilos compared to, you know, the, the little wimpy uh, footballers who are, you know, 80 or 90 kilos. So, you know, those little soft... Yeah, yes, exactly. I've got my rugby head on at this time of year. But they do, they sit on a bike and keep warm. Look, just put a bib on them and tell them to warm up and just run up and down the side. I don't see that's a, you know, I don't think it should should be an issue. Um, they should they should carry on doing that. Look, we've got plenty more to debate. Um, do get your questions in if there's something that you want to know uh, about this new trial system. And there are plenty more questions I want to ask Christina as well when we come back. But we have got, got uh, Fab in the can for us uh, a little bit earlier. Ben spoke to Fabrizio about all the latest transfer dealings. Fabrizio, great to see you as ever. Hope you've got some rests now that the yeah, transfer windows okay. have shut. You're certainly looking well. Let's start with the big story, probably the biggest in the build-up to the summer window. Kylian Mbappe, we've heard he's signed for Real Madrid. He hasn't signed for Real Madrid. He's staying at PSG. He's moving to the Premier League. He might consider free agency. We've pretty much heard every single eventuality. What is the latest? Yeah, I'm not surprised, honestly, because on this Bappe saga, it's almost three, four years that we have a lot of rumours, a lot of stories, but I think this saga will go in a clear direction as soon as Nasser Khalifi, Paris Saint-Germain president, will have a formal communication from Kylian Mbappé. Part of this gentleman agreement they have, the player himself and the president himself, not involving the camp, lawyers, other people in the board. It's really important, the relationship in this moment between Nasser Khalifi and Mbappé. Part of this gentleman agreement is to inform Nasser Khalifi as soon as the player decides his future. So I think that moment is going to be crucial to understand what's going to happen. For sure, Real Madrid keep working on that uh, behind, the, behind the scenes. They are now allowed to negotiate with Kylian Mbappé. He's obviously a free agent at the end of the season. So everything is okay on Real Madrid side in terms of going there, negotiating with the player, negotiating with the mother. The conversation is ongoing and they keep their confidence. But nothing is signed, nothing is guaranteed and nothing is communicated yet to Paris Saint-Germain or to Real Madrid or any other club. So we have to wait for Kylian to make his decision and then we will be able to inform on the next steps of this crazy saga. If Mbappe leaves PSG, do they have a contingency plan and are there any attack-minded names that you can share on their shortlist? Yeah, I think they have a contingency plan for different positions. So I'm sure they would need a player to replace Kylian Mbappe and we know that the story around in the recent weeks was about Rafa Leao, who is for sure a player appreciated by Paris Saint-Germain. Luis Campos, the director of, of Paris Saint-Germain, is the man who signed Rafa Leao for Lille and then they sold him to Milan. So he he always had a special passion for this, for this player. Let's see if they will return on Leao or go for any other player, but for sure Leao could be one of the candidates. Then I'm sure that they will return also in the midfield with a new signing in that position because they wanted Bernardo Silva stop target last summer. It was not possible to proceed with Manchester City, but they expect... Uh, PSG in case but believes to try to sign an important midfielder let's see if it's going to be Bernardo or any other player but that position will also be covered and then a centre-back because they wanted to sign Lenny Giroud from Lille already in the January transfer window that was not possible because Lille president Letang didn't want to negotiate but in the summer that could be different there will be many clubs involved in the race from England from Spain with Real Madrid really interested in Giroud so it's not going to be easy but I think Paris Saint-Germain will try to sign at least three important talents and players in case Kylian Mbappé leaves. Let's talk about Liverpool. Their biggest signing in the coming weeks or months is going to be a manager to replace Jurgen Klopp. Is it fair at this early stage to call Xabi Alonso the favourite? 
I think yes, in this moment, yes. Uh, it's not something 100% decided or advanced in terms of negotiations because they want to appoint a new director of football and then to proceed with the concrete negotiations for a new manager. So I think in terms of timings, uh, we should be a bit more patient to see what's going to happen at Liverpool in the next weeks and months. But in the ideas of the board, and this is not something new, it's something that they always had in their mind, even before Jurgen Klopp made his announcement to leave the club, you're, uh, sorry, Xabi Alonso has always been considered a very strong carburetor. They really appreciate everything about Xabi Alonso. Uh, as a manager, as a person, the connection he has with the club and the city and the fans. So there is something special between Liverpool and, and Xabi Alonso. And this is why I think we can consider him the favourite for, for the job. Liverpool are always very secretive with their recruitment. But regarding the sporting director, is it your understanding that they want sporting director first, then manager and with sporting director names, are there any that you're aware of that are on the shortlist? Yeah, there are many rumours, but in this moment, I don't have a strong candidate. As you mentioned, Liverpool are very good at keeping things quiet in the media. So I think this is still the, still the case. Um, they tried for Michael Edwards' return a couple of weeks ago, but he said no to that possibility. Uh, he's very happy with his current situation. So he turned out that that possibility. Let's see what Liverpool will do in the next, uh, in the next days in terms of director. And to answer your first question, yes. I think they want to have a new direction with someone who can decide on the entire process. It means the new manager, but also the contrast of some important players like Van Dijk, Alexander-Arnold, Mo Salah and, and others, because it's important for Liverpool to understand what kind of project they can sell to a new manager, they can sell to new players for the summer, and also for the players who are already at the club and want to understand what's going to happen in Liverpool. So it's not something negative. I think it's just part of the transition and something that always happens at top clubs when they have this kind of big shock and big change. Let's talk about Chelsea. broker story that Bayern Munich had inquired about Mikhailo Mudrik. How close were they to making progress on that one? I would not even mention a negotiation in that case because it was just an idea on Bayern's side when they knew about the injury of, of Kingsley Coman. They started inquiring around for opportunities, maybe for a loan deal for, uh, for wingers. And one of the names they mentioned internally was Mikhailo Mudrik. They tried to understand if there was room for negotiation with, uh, with Chelsea, but the answer from what I heard was immediately a no. So it was not even a matter of money or a matter of details of the or structure of the deal. It was just about an idea from Bayern and Chelsea immediately said no, they didn't want to change anything. The only player allowed to leave in that position was, uh, was Armando Broja, who is obviously a striker. So for them, it was, was fine to give the green light for Armando, not for uh, Mikhailo Modric. So this is why the idea was never that close or, or concrete. And also for Bayern, probably the best solution was already to proceed with Brian Saragossa to, to anticipate the deal for the, for the January transfer window final days. And so they tried, but was never really close. And Conor Gallagher has been one of Chelsea's best players so far this season. Two goals last night in the 3-1 victory at Crystal Palace, but still no advancement on new contract talks. Do you still sense he's very much for sale this summer? Or given his form, could Chelsea now start to talk to Gallagher about a new deal? Yeah, at the moment, the situation has not changed. Obviously, he's doing very well. But at the moment, as you mentioned, the situation has not changed. It's still no advance in terms of new contract. But it's also fair to say that in January, yes, Conor Gallagher was available on the market in case of big proposal, but nothing happened in terms of negotiations. We heard many stories about the possibility of negotiation, direct negotiation, club to club, Chelsea-Tottenham, but the only time they had this kind of discussion was at the end of 
of August and not in the January window, not in December. So I think the situation of Gallagher really depends on Chelsea now, what they want to do in the next two, three months. Otherwise, they have to sell the player in the summer as they did with Mason Mount. I think it's really similar. Extend the contract now or sell the player in the summer. So it's now on Chelsea. Let's see what they decide to do. My personal opinion is that it's not easy to find this kind of player, especially an English player uh, with a good experience, but still young. I think it would be ideal for Chelsea to keep him at the club, but obviously they will make their own decisions. Tottenham then linked with Conor Gallagher and also this week some suggestions that they might be in the market for either Rafinha or Pedro Neto. Is there any truth with those links? I think these are two players they always appreciated, always. Rafinha was already in Tottenham list when he was at Leeds and since some people in the in the scouting really appreciate him. I think it will really depend on what happens in Barcelona in terms of outgoings. If they decide to put Rafinha on the market, in that case for Tottenham it would be an opportunity, but not only for Tottenham. I think there would be many clubs interested in, uh, in Rafinha. And Pedro Neto, I think, would be one of the names of the of the summer transfer window because there is interest from multiple clubs also in this case. It's true that Tottenham appreciate the player, so I would mention both as part of the potential list, but in both places, nothing is advanced yet. Uh, I heard in the past few days on, on I think, on Spanish media, there was already an official bid from Tottenham for Rafinha. This is not the case. It's too early. It will take time before Tottenham decide who is the player they really want. But for sure, they will add a winger to the squad in the summer. And these two players are appreciated since long time. It's not something fresh or new. So for Tottenham, these could be two opportunities. And I think they also fit the idea of Andrzej Postecoglou. So I see Tottenham doing something important in that position in the, in the summer transfer window and in the midfield too. Just finally, let's finish on Manchester United. So Jim Ratcliffe is almost in, just waiting for the A-share tender and then obviously the various approvals and the transfer funds. What kind of concrete targets do you think Manchester United will be looking for in the summer? Either specific names or key priority positions? Yeah, for names, I think we really have to wait for the new director also in this case to understand what kind of ideas they want to share with the manager and then to proceed with negotiations. But in terms of uh, of positions, for sure, they have to replace Martial. They need a striker, they need a player in that position. Uh, so I expect my United to go for a, for a striker. And then I expect my United to sign a very important centre-back. This is something they already decided in September last year. So centre-back will be a crucial position for, for Manchester United. And then I think there could be something else. So I think my United will be, will be busy in the summer. Great stuff as ever, Fabrizio. Keep up the good work. We'll speak to you next week. Thank you. And see you. Ciao. Ciao. Thanks for that, Ben. Uh, to remind you, that Christina Uncle and uh, James Benj are with us today. Ben Jacobs here as ever. Since you recorded that, Ben, Sir Jim's uh, acquisition of 25% of Manchester United and further investment of $300 million in the club has been approved by the Premier League board following the completion of the owners and directors test. Now, the board agreed to the change of the club's ownership structure last week. This has now been officially ratified by an independent oversight panel. And this is the first time this new panel has sat, Ben, and agreed to a partial takeover. Yeah, this is another formality and box tick. If you like, there was never any suggestion that Sir Jim Ratcliffe would fail the Premier League owners and directors test, but significantly we're edging closer to 27% in Manchester United officially being handed over to Ratcliffe. Now, why 27%? 25% A shares and B shares. Remember, the B shares are the Glazers ones that have more power. Then the A shares and then 300 million in investment gets another two and a half percent. So the total stake, 
27%. Now, the B shares from the Glazers are done. The A share tender is ongoing, and there is a new deadline of midnight Eastern time on February the 17th. So we're still going to have to wait a few days for that. But again, nothing other than a procedure or a formality at this stage, because Sir Jim Ratcliffe is only looking for a maximum of 25% of the 31% of A shares to complete his total 25% stake plus that little bit extra. And as a result, he's already had enough A share investors commit to selling their shares. But the process requires every shareholder to have the opportunity to say if they want to sell. And then the more that want to sell, obviously the ratios are adjusted and the numbers scaled back because Ratcliffe will not take all of them. He'll only take a maximum of 25% of those A shares. So that's still to be completed. FA approval is still to be completed. But this is the next step that tells you that Sir Jim Ratcliffe's entry into Manchester United officially is imminent, which is good news because as soon as he is formally in, then he has sporting control and he can start along with Ineos and Omar Barada, the incoming CEO who will start in the summer, begin that process of finalising a sporting director. Brilliant. Thank you, Ben. That is a slight offshoot of what we are discussing today, which is are the rulemakers ruining football with um, specific focus on this new blue card that has come out of the sky and uh, potentially could be used in higher grade football while it is being trialled at lower level football at the moment. Now, one of the questions to you, Christina, is when it's been trialled, half of the, the reason it's there is to stamp out dissent. And that, that is part of the occasion that referees will be able to use this card. So if I say to you, Christina, you're a beep, then you might show me the old blue card and go, Angus, oi, off for 10 minutes, go and calm down, go and run up and down the touchline in a bib and um, come back to me when you can be a little bit more polite. But I was just thinking, how successful has that been while they've been trialling it? So right now, one of the biggest, and this is similar to uh, challenges on plays, the easiest way to frame this is there's a pendulum of what would be considered, right? Because the yellow card and the red card will still be live and active when we talk about a uh, referee abuse and, you know, verbal abuse, right? Assault obviously will always be a red card in the suspension <laughs> of the game. But um, <laughs> the all, all gambits of the yellow... The whole rainbow is available for the referees when we still talk about it to set. Don't, we don't need a rainbow of cards. We're, three is going to be enough. There's going to be batting more. Red and yellow and pink and green and orange and purple and blue. I mean, look, we're all going to be out. You know, no one's going to know what's going on. <laughs> no, no. But I mean, I guess to your point, it, it is important to, yes, eliminate uh, referee dissent of verbal abuse. Um, at the highest levels, because that does dictate what is happening at the grassroots youth levels and in the competition of play and expectations, right? Um, no matter how much pros say it's not our fault, it doesn't matter. Um, it does. They still are a model uh, of what people emulate and think is acceptable. Um, but that being said is, yes, you're correct. If there is a dissent and here kind of going back to the different types of challenges, there will be a pendulum of what is considered not acceptable, but the different layers of types of dissent that some will categorically fall within uh, a red card, right? Um, 
if it's anything, you're an F and blank, 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 blank. You know what I mean? Those types yeah. of things that are loud and they're big and everybody hears it and it puts the whole game into disrepute. That will just still automatically be a red card. There is no sin bin. It's no go home and, you know, take your boots and hit the showers kind of a thing. Right. Then you have the types of dissent where, especially if we talk about technical staff, because it would potentially, it'll be interesting to see if a blue card could be applied to technical staff. Uh, that has not been explored. So uh, that's another angle to take a look at it. But yeah. um if you give a yellow card for come on ref you know we have learned to have to manage these and it's a very hard line from the gray area to define when is it too much when has it crossed the line and therefore that's why yellow and red cards have now been introduced to the technical staff um because it was more of a clear way and indication of saying when have we crossed the line right the yellow card yeah. is a very clear indication for that so kind of getting to that point of they will be, and there will be clear examples given to us from considerations, right? Is it loud? Is it um, direct? Is it personal? Um, have they made themselves bigger in their actions instead of saying, hey, you're effing horrible while you walk by me? You know, that's something that shouldn't be said, but, you know, it's just between you and I, Angus, I might eat that and just give you a yellow card for it, right? Or I might not yep. say that again, and I'd be like, hey, you know, you act out again, like, I'm going to have to make this bigger than what it is, which right now is just you personally attacking me, and only you, me, and the Lord uh, Almighty knows about it, right? Um, so it's going to help with the different shades. It's just a matter of us defining what does rise to the level, because it has to be to the level that is appropriate for the punitive implications of what a blue card is. Um, so those things still need to be kind of worked out of where the officials are going to give guidance as to what is a blue card, what's a yellow card, and what's a red card. But that has not. And yet I suppose been if, if you've given a player, if you've given a player a yellow card for dissent because it was serious enough, say in the first half, second half they get mouthy again, and you go, mm, I don't quite want to send them off. I'll give them a blue. So you're actually giving them a card and a half, where previously. You might have given two yellows and said, right, you know, marching orders, off you go. Yes, but the interesting part here is if you get a yellow and a blue, it is considered a red card implication. So you are actually out. Okay. Okay. So that's what I did. That that, that, that's, that's a very interesting yes. part. So two cards of whatever color, uh, that, that makes a red. Yes. And so unless Ben, I misread that or something, I see your face. So I thought it was a yellow, yellow and a yellow blue equals a red, right? So the blue still has the implications because if we look at the cards, you got a yellow card, you got a red card and a blue card sits in between. So if we were to say we have two yellow cards equal a red, a yellow and a blue will equal a red and two blues gotcha. equal a red. I so the ramifications are still there for that impact. And that's why when everyone says like, oh, just give a red card instead. Well, not quite there or just give two yellow cards. Right. And then that'll quite. No, they'll all still equal to a red card uh, where I think it comes into is helping the disciplinary committee, which is not the officials, but it's the competition uh, individuals determine what type of after sanction do we give, right? So right now at this point, if you get a red, it's typically just one car, one game that you sit, unless there's some excessive, uh, you know, actions, right? Whether it's uh, violent conduct, right? Whether it's uh, racial abuse, right? There's going to be more implications with it. I think what the blue card helps is to let those make a determination of, let's say you get a yellow and a blue card and the yellow is just for a reckless tackle. Blue card is just for either dissent or it's for the cynical foul. That may not rise to sitting an additional game out. That game alone might be fine. And then you might not have to sit out the next game. So that goes a little bit more to helping to define what kind of a foul and you know, will the competition providers add more punishment to that? 
My worry, okay, James. Go on, no, go on. Yeah, now I was going to ask James a question as well, Ben. You mm-hmm. know, but but let um, let me just ask this, and then you come back to it because clearly you've got uh, worries about it as well, Ben. But I just wondered. Look, this was announced last week, James. You've been at press conferences in the intervening time. Those that you've been to, or the managers that you've heard from, or coaches, whoever. What is their general feeling that you've experienced? I mean, you, you almost uniformly less than impressed. I haven't. I'm unaware of a manager who's come out and said, "Let's give it a go." But I think managers, in many ways, is sort of the ultimate archetype of the conservatism of football. You know, they are not interested, and they can't help but not be interested in in the big picture of the game. While they're still in a job, they really don't want much to change, and you can't blame them for that. Um, and I think, you know, to an extent as well, they're they're conscious that they can set the tone for this, and they have. I think it was very obvious, certainly to me. I think the Premier League is overwhelmingly important in setting the sort of global agenda of conversation in sport. I don't think that's an arrogant English thing to say. I just think that's the truth. And I, I think a lot of that can then come from managers in their press conferences because that's how the British press, which I'm not part of, but have been in the past, that's how they fill their back pages, you know. And it's it's there's no there was no easier story on Thursday and Friday than going to Ange Postecoglou, Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, and I think they would all sort of whether they acknowledge it or not have a inherent view of the game that sort of well, this works for me. I'm quite good at this. Let's let's not go messing around with things. They've all been, they've all worked themselves up into a lather, perhaps unnecessarily so, over VAR uh, and over the, the refereeing decisions that, as far as they see, only go against themselves. So I think they, they've set the tone for this sort of, you know, even though I wasn't surprised that the reaction was, this is bad, I it took me back how quickly it sort of, forced yeah. a, a reverse ferret by FIFA, by IFAB, um, because all because some Premier League managers don't like it. I mean, how long would it be before we actually saw this, even as a trial, at a level where it would affect your Postacoglis, your Artetas? Yeah. Probably, like, I'd be surprised if it was in a de- within a decade. Yeah, and I think you're right. And I also think that we won't know if it is positive or negative until we try it and you have to ultimately send the blue card up the system to get to elite level football, to have it interact with a big stadium, a big fan base, a top referee and VAR. I think, James, I have two worries or thoughts that put me off it to begin with. One is that the Simbin itself is short enough that it might take a lot of energy out of the game. I know that we argue the other extreme that a side may go gung-ho, but the side that are simbined may delay and wait and time waste. And then technically more bookings are supposed to take place, but it's very easy to eat up a mundane 10 minutes in football. Now that's not a reason not to try it, but that's my worry. Number one, my worry. Number two, and Christina, feel free to chime in as well after James, if you wish, is it actually dilutes the power of the red card and I sense what will happen is rather than the Simbin being seen as a nice halfway house to appropriately punish somebody without the severity of a sending off I think we're going to get a lot of a player was Simbin it should have been a red instead and then they came back on to haunt us 
and a lot of outrage from managers who feel that that player should have gone permanently, not only in a temporary sense. I, I do think on that latter point, I certainly like hearing Christine explain it, just sort of came round to that view of like, we know it once we see it. And and yes, you're right that, that what will happen to an extent is managers will say, oh, I you know, I thought that was violent conduct because he's grabbed him and you know how is that not violent conduct in this imagined example i've come up with i'm sure that will happen and i'm sure that will sometimes be relayed uncritically um and and that will sort of stoke the fires of football conversation for several years and it will be deeply dull much like the var conversation it's it's actually quite boring because most of the time VAR is fine and maybe like there's a bigger picture conversation that, that we will never have, but we ought to have about why we can't all just chill out a bit more about refereeing and acknowledge that, Hey, these guys make just as many mistakes, but maybe a few less than a few of the players on the pitch and it's okay. And a lot of these aren't even mistakes. We just have different interpretations of things. Um, I can't remember what the other thing I wanted to say was. I thought it was really profound, but it's gone from me. Now. Um, we'll come back to you. Don't, don't stress <laughs> so me. That's such a shame. <laughs> well, I do. Well, when I feel free to cut me off if it comes back to you. But um, it, I, I think that's the point is this. The blue card is going to find itself more in the categories of what's considered stopping a promising attack. As I mentioned, kind of as if it's in the central of the midfield, it's because we still have a number of defenders. So for what people need to understand is denying an obvious, and the key word is obvious, goal scoring opportunity, also fondly known as dog so, um, that is always going to continue to stay as a red card, right? Because that's the number of defenders, the direction, the distance, the goal, right? And having possession and or likelihood of regaining possession. Those are all all still going to categorically fit under the red card. Here, this is dipping into the stopping a promising attack when we know there's an advantage, but it's not an obvious goal scoring opportunity. So you're going to see this most likely in the center of the midfield when there's still about two, three defenders, when there's a more of a two versus three scenario, and there's still defenders behind uh, that are still able to uh, able to purposefully and deliberately and meaningfully is the word I want to use meaningfully defend in this scenario. So the blue card's not going to take away the, the impact of the red card, because what we're only doing is we're stopping those promising attack scenarios. If we see it in the attacking third, you may see it more when someone is turning the quarter uh, in the corner in the technical, uh, uh, the uh, closer to the goal line itself, who's beaten a player, but you still have five issues, five in the penalty area box. So therefore it's not an obvious goal scoring opportunity. It's just a promising attack. So that's where the blue card is going to have more implications in that respect. So it's not going to take away the bite from a red card because once again, it's understanding what the blue card is and the purpose behind it. And we specifically what exact fouls it will be admonishing and it won't be the red card foul. So the red cards still are going to happen for serious foul play, violent conduct and denying an obvious, obvious goal scoring opportunity. opportunity. Um, Christina, what happens if a, a goalkeeper gets a blue card? <laughs> that's uh, that's actually one of the things I want to know is if there is, and it's not yet been considered is, does that mean an on-field player has to step in at that position? Or can we have – I know that would be great. That would actually make room for some that's great – That's worth doing it just for that. See, now, yeah, quiet. I think it should be a card only for goalkeepers. <laughs> Forget the other ten. Just give it to the goalkeeper. 
Oh yeah, and the, then uh, the, the opponents British papers will have get a field the chance. Day with it. Yeah, the, <laughs> then then your opponents get the chance to choose who they want of your <laughs> team to go in goal. Oh, this is getting, it's like a Hunger Games. Which one's going to be yeah. the tribute and put into the goal? Um, so here's where I feel like you would need have to have a temporary goalkeeper replacement. Someone else would have to step off the field. Just because we know, obviously, the implications of a goalkeeper and the significant skill and unique abilities. And we always joke, there's always one goalkeeper, good goalkeeper and the other second one's not the greatest. So I do think there will need to be a temporary sub. So this would probably make an alteration to the substitution laws. Um, and I do want to emphasize that I've gotten some tweets already. Uh, this is not American made law. We are not bringing in our laws. Americans typically do not sit on IFAB. Uh, you have to be part of the United That's Kingdom. Uh, so I do want to clarify, it is not the Americans who are making these laws. Absolutely. Even though if you look at Major League Soccer, we're introducing a lot of interesting laws for this season. IFAB is one of the most antiquated systems around. It is, it is, uh, as, as far as I remember, uh, England, Wales, Scotland, and is it Northern Ireland and also yeah. FIFA? Mm -hmm. So all the home countries from the UK have a vote each and FIFA have four votes. And if anything's to be passed, I think it has to be passed by 75%. We so, make the sport, so we should yeah, be well, it's, it's, exactly. it. We keep the rules. I mean, it's as bad as the MCC with cricket. These old boys sitting in the pavilion at Lords, you know, keeping control of the, you know, the game. It, it, it seems bizarre to me, although I think IFAB would say, look, we do have representation from some very serious people who have played the game. The likes of Arsene Wenger, Luis Figo is there and, and plenty more besides um, that, that, are, are I was offered a position in the Scottish FA. I was offered what? a position in the Scottish FA to get on IFAB. It was all in jest. I told them that there's no way I'll ever get it. That's a dream of mine to sit on IFAB. And they said, move to Scotland and we'll get you there. And I just can't they, eat uh, haggis. Is that what it is? I can't there, there are places. <laughs> black pudding. I'm telling you, Christina. It's, it's worse than black pudding. It's worse than black pudding. It's a beautiful pudding. country. Haggis is lovely. Um, yeah, great. Yes. Can yeah, I just add as well, and I know that James had like a light bulb go above him, so I presume his <laughs> profound point has come back, and come I, back. I'm looking forward to the suspense of that. But Don't go on uh, too long, the, Ben, otherwise he'll forget it again. It this is very true. <laughs> Christina, are we to presume with blue cards that they are only game-specific? In other words, my hunch is that you're going to get a more likelihood of someone taking a cynical foul, even knowing the punishment towards the end of a game. If you 1-0 up, someone goes clean through the midfield, you might be prepared to drag them back at that stage in the game, knowing that you're going to get a blue card. And obviously, if there was only four minutes left in the game, then the punishment is diminished. But that is just the reality of the fact there isn't 10 minutes left in the game. Um, are we to presume that if you are simbin for 10 minutes, that it wouldn't spill over into the next game so you couldn't be selected? Or if you were selected, you'd have to do those six extra minutes in a spillover sense. Uh, are we to presume if the 10 minutes isn't met due to the logistics of time, that the simbin is just shorter? Yeah, so I, I do believe it have to stay to game specific and not pour over to the next game itself um, because we decided and determined that a blue card does not reach the level of a red card and therefore should not implicate a secondary game in that scenario because of, once again, does the crime meet the punishment? Um, so I feel like it will remain game specific, not pour over to into the second game, but there'd have to be a good reason as to why we would, uh, or by we, I keep adding myself into this, I'm not yet part of IFAB, 
uh, of why I would determine and say, let's go ahead and move it to the secondary. Because if that's the case, then we might as well allow a red card to basically stay in that play. So I do feel yeah, like I it will be game specific. It is a bit of the dark arts. And similar to your point, this will be a decision that players will be deliberately making, such as when a player deliberately handles a ball to prevent it from going into the goal, knowing they're going to get a red card and a potential penalty. But we've seen it where teams have gone on um, because of that decision. Yeah, Luis Suarez being the most notable um, um, cheat around. Um, but but, but <laughs> I, I think if, if someone's getting sent off in the 84th minute, then you, I think you should say, right, if you're going to bring in the blue card, we're going to play for 10 minutes. We're not going to finish the game after, you know, 90 minutes, say there was no extra time. We'll go on for, for, for those extra minutes. So we'll play. You'll get your 10 minutes. Don't worry, because that will stop them from no, saying, that's oh, not it's 89th minute. Yeah, that's then, not. Then you, why? Because you could be losing the game 1-0 and decide the game's ending anyway. So you're going to purposefully get somebody blue carded, play the game with 10 men, but you've got nine extra minutes to try and equalise. Yeah, but that's that's taking out the, the you de deliberately taking someone back if they were um, making a counter-attack. But the point is, if you add time that doesn't exist, then that can be exploited by teams. Uh, and I don't think you would add time. And here's the reason why. How many times have we seen the clock end exactly in the 90th minute? Never. Um, yeah, no, well, not now. We always kind of joke in the referee. Yes, exactly. We kind of joke. And this is done by, you know, essentially it's the considerations of IFAB and FIFA who did determine at the Men's World Cup that they were going to be adding all the additional time. So we always joke and laugh, at least in the referee community way back in the day, that, you know, when in doubt as to how much time, do a minimum of three. You'll always save for three minutes. So yeah, um, no I'm not saying that's Exactly. It's, it's an ongoing joke. No one complains at three. It's that happy middle. One minute is everyone's upset. Five minutes, everyone's angry. Correct. So like, I don't, I don't believe additional time should be added on and saying, oh, there's a four minute Sinbin individual. I think it just is part of the repercussions and we're going to have additional time anyways that will eat into that. So I think James, all in all, it'll wash itself out. James, come on, let's this this big moment and, and we're ready for it. Okay. This is going to be amazing. It's, well, it's going to be such a disappointment, isn't it? But I mean, just sort of looking at that question at the the top of the of the slide or whatever the the, the screen, I, I actually wonder if actually what rulemakers are doing is is not enough. If this sport just doesn't change and try enough, I mean, it has been my entire lifetime of watching football. Has the on field experience? changed in any significant way since the implementation of the back pass rule now you know there have been tweaks and needles i remember you know that in years gone by tackles through the from behind were legislated out of the game but actually the experience of football is remarkably static considering how much around it has changed the speed of the the players the fitness and i feel like this sport is so incredibly conservative about trying anything because there are huge huge problems within it as much as we love it and it's the best entertainment product there is i mean i still think no no one sort of speaks about this crazy world we exist in where if the ball happens to hit a hand and there's so much gray areas about handball that we haven't no one really has fully addressed that it just automatically becomes an 80 percent chance of scoring a goal i mean no one has try as to the best of my knowledge someone correct me if i'm wrong no one has said you know are there different ways we can trial for implementing different sorts of fouls in the penalty area so that a professional foul or perhaps a 
you know, a violent, an act of violent conduct in the attacking third could be a penalty, for instance, but a non-deliberate handball. And I know, Christina, you would probably hate the idea of having to determine, you know, if something's entirely non-deliberate and that would be another. It gives me more job of... security on the media side. <laughs> <laughs> You're delighted. Um, I, I, I think this needs to be a sport that's a little bit more willing to just try and fail. And, you know, there are, thousands of competitions the world around at the highest level as well the efl cup for instance could be the ultimate proving ground for okay this year the efl cup has different penalty rules to everyone else let's see what happens just do it and if it fails it's not the end of the world everything is just sort of blown up every every mistake by a referee is you know grounds for social media abuse like it would the, the sport would work much better if we just accepted that we try things and they fail sometimes they do it so well in america yeah and i think as well things get tried under the radar so this blue card hasn't been miraculously pulled out it has to rise up the system of course if you put it straight into the premier league or the champions league it's going to be under more scrutiny but i agree with your broader point i think it actually was quite profound about football being old and archaic and yet all this modern technology existing. And if you think about dissent, it's negative, obviously, because it can be too over-exuberant, it can be abusive. We have to find a way of cutting it out. But if you think historically about dissent, it wasn't necessarily meant in that manner. It was the fact that you had one man or woman in the middle, and they were the decision maker. So it breeds itself towards players historically running to that person because you're still perhaps trying to change their mind. Now we're in a situation where every modern footballer at elite level should realise that a penalty appeal will be looked at. So you've got no excuse to run to the referee, to get in his or her face, to make a case, unless you feel somehow like you're influencing the decision-making process. And then you've still got to do that politely because football has changed. And something that auto-punishes appeal, not even dissent, but over-speaking, over-aggressiveness, whatever side of the line it's on, I think is quite profound because there should be no reason for it to be there in the first place when everyone knows now modern football at elite level anyway does have that ability to review something and make a considered decision using technology and any other resources. So it's kind of quite interesting to me, Christina, because dissent for me didn't start as dissent. It started as a bunch of exuberant athletes historically crowding around the decision maker, which you would do in the heat of the moment. And although you've got to be respectful about it, I'm quite empathetic to that because why wouldn't you try and change the mind of the person making the decision? But now you know there's a way to try and change their mind. There's a way to talk to the referee and there's a safety net of technology. If people persist on being abusive or even over exuberant, perhaps they should be punished. And Ben, I always tell players, little boy who cried wolf. And when you look at me puzzled, then it, that's how I say you, that's how you should manage officials, to be quite honest, as a player. Uh, not complain every two seconds, not crowd a referee. You come to me polite, fully respectful. I'll always have that conversation and listen to what you have to say, as opposed to being abusive about it. Let's leave it on a positive. That's that's a very good place to leave it. But just a quick show of hands. Who's Who after this pod is still in favour of a blue card? Yeah, I'm all in. 
Oh, I can't, believe I can't believe it. I've lost this debate. Honestly, <laughs> I, 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 all, all I would leave this pod by saying, is it really necessary? And my answer would be no. So let's uh, any boot, <laughs> yes, but I, I've been defeated. Congratulations, you've turned Ben, and not many people can do that. Um, so Christina to James to Ben, thank you all very much indeed. A very, very healthy debate. It'd be really, really interesting to see how far up the footballing food chain the blue card actually goes. Um, or will it, as Ben has said, be given the red card itself? Thank you, everybody, for listening. This is the debrief. We're back next week. Wanna hear you go?